0: hotel bar sessions the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar which as we all know is where the real philosophy happens
1: hey welcome back to hotel bar sessions where you get to hear three philosophers sit at a hotel bar and chop it up today we're going to introduce my two co-hosts we're going to get some rants and raves and some drink orders so lee what are you having
0: I am having my usual Fireball and Diet Coke. No, wait. I'm not having my usual. I always say that my usual is Fireball and Diet Coke, which is true when I actually go to a bar. But at home, it's Fireball and Diet Dr. Pepper. I also want to say Diet Dr. Pepper is the greatest diet soda there
1: is. Anyway, Do you have a big list of cheap... Sodas that you just go through (laughs) every week, like the sodas that time forgot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And and in case Fresca is listening, we're still (laughs) in.
0: We love the Fresca. <laughs> also, Fireball, call us. <laughs> I mean, like, how have we not gotten a sponsorship
2: from Fireball or Tito's, for
1: that matter? Right? Right. Look, Tito's. I'm buying American, and I think you should re- recognize that.
0: <laughs> All right. So, my rant this week is the U.S. Congress. I want to particularly call out the Senate Democrats. They are just dropping the ball on everything. So we're recording this right at the beginning of August. The rent moratorium just ended, which means that eviction notices go out today for millions of people. I don't understand why the Congress couldn't get their shit together on rent. I also, by the way, want to mention that in just a couple of months, we're all going to have to start paying student loans back again. This is another thing they've 100% dropped the ball on. I mean, we're talking about things that affect a huge portion of the American population. They're pretty easy fixes. And oh, by the way, how quickly we forget that we gave away like how many trillion dollars to corporations only eight months ago to make sure that they didn't suffer, but we can't do Anything for regular Americans,
2: so you know what? Screw you, U.S. Congress. Also, I'm a landlord, and my mom is my tenant. So, mom, pay up. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Eviction notice is in the mail. I'm tired of your shit, mom. Come on now. But if
0: you don't want to pay up, can you pay my student loans? <laughs> we
1: we can work something out.
0: Okay, so my rave this week is actually the European Union getting its shit together on trying to do something about climate change. So this month, the European Union announced their plans to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Now, that's assuming we're all still here and have a livable planet in 2050. But their plan included, among other things, plans to tax jet fuel And to ban the sale of petrol and diesel-powered cars within 20 years. We need to get on this. I know that we've mentioned this several times in this podcast already. But kudos to the EU
2: for trying to make some bold moves.
1: All right. I like those rants. I like that rave. So, Rick, what are you having and what are your rants and raves?
2: I'm uh, drinking an Aperol Spritz this afternoon. Um, What is
1: Aperol? Aperol, it's kind of like
2: Campari, but it's not as bitter. It's more of an orangey, citrusy flavor, and okay. you put it with some sparkling wine, and it's just a lovely More afternoon. fresca. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, some sparkling wine, some fresca, and <laughs> some Aperol, <laughs> and you got yourself a Johnson right there.
1: <laughs> I don't know, Rick. You know, you keep it up with these fancy drink orders. I may call bullshit on your working class card. <laughs> no. Nicole. is that what they're serving my working classes in Chicago now Aperol?
2: No if I go to a bar in Chicago and ask for an Aperol spritz well I, I'd hear something homophobic shouted <laughs> back <laughs> I was going to say
1: I know exactly what, what will be shouted back at you well that sounds really tasty. And then Rick would be like my people are pipe fitters <laughs> right, right. I got my dance union card right here.
2: Yeah and they would say okay sit down ma'am
1: right right i think i've been to that bar so what are your rants what are your raves
2: i'm raving about humboldt park in chicago i live just a half a block from it and my mom and i walk every morning in the park and there's a place where you go over this little stone bridge and there was a great blue heron standing on the bridge so we had to go around and i'm like this is just amazing So Humboldt Park is absolutely gorgeous. It's huge. And so I'm raving about Humboldt Park. I'm ranting about Augustine of Hippo. What? Yeah. I was asked to contribute to a volume on Augustine and women. And I'm writing an essay called The Erased Women of Augustine's Confessions. And look, he's a beautiful writer and obviously philosophically incredibly influential, But my God, what a strange, sad little man he comes off as sometimes. He doesn't mention that his dad died until way after the fact. And he's like, oh yeah, oh, by the way, my dad died. The woman he has a kid with never gets named in the entire confessions. And the only thing he says about his wet nurses is that they caused him to sin. So come (laughs) on, Augustine, I can't
1: even. So not necessarily in defense of Augustine, Who certainly has one of the great catchphrases of antiquity you know lord make me chaste but not yet (laughs) i'm just kind of saying it feels like you're blaming him for being a man of his time not that that's a good thing but i'm just saying that's an interesting perspective to come that it's not out of order for him to be terribly misogynistic at that moment in history
2: well my problem is not just the misogyny but the way in which for him that's linked up to His weird relationship To desire and pleasure And not just sexual And so my argument Well, not to go through this entire paper But this is part of my argument
1: And in this paper, I will argue <laughs> <Right>. that <laughs> right. And this is a new feature for the listeners Where we actually begin to contest People's rants and raves <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: where, where we rant about rants and raves Exactly <laughs>
1: All right,
0: Charles, what about you? What are you drinking and what's your rant and rave?
1: You know, I'm spending some time in NYC. Shout out to Laurelton, Queens. And in celebration of my in laws, I think I'm going to have myself a nice Mount Gay Silver on the Rocks. It's as smooth as you can conceive of when it comes to a nice rum. You drink it, it's like water. It's absolutely amazing. So, hey, Mount Gay. Call us. Call us. <laughs> <laughs> First call Tito's, then call us. That's right. (laughs) That's what I'm having. My rant is the quest for immortality. You know, Mm. people who are just overly consumed with, you've got to eat exactly perfectly, even exercise exactly perfectly, you've got to look this way and, and look that way. Look, I've lived in Miami, I've lived in LA, and there's something really strange about cultures where people are clearly afraid of death, and they're afraid of death because they're afraid of change. So like this quest to be eternally youthful, this quest to be immortally gorgeous, I just find it problematic. And I'm saying all of that because I love eggs, and I read somewhere that two eggs a day is too many. And I thought, oh, come on. Come on. So that's my rant. This eternal quest to defy nature's laws. It's like a mixture of Dorian Gray and Frankenstein being thrust into South Beach. Big
2: Egg, if you're listening, we're interested. (laughs) That's right, Big Egg.
1: That's right, Big Egg. My rave is for the old school Brooklyn block party. I had the opportunity, invited by some friends. The streets were blocked off. There's a DJ, there are vendors, Mm. there's magic acts for the children. And it was just absolutely gorgeous that we had this moment. It was like a bubble that took us back 30, 40 years to what seemed to be a kinder, friendlier time where people on this street were actually more than just neighbors, but they were a community. So Mm. shout out to the old school Brooklyn block party. It was absolutely gorgeous. All right, so here we are. Guess who's in the hot seat this week? It is our dear Humboldt Park residing leader, Rick Lee. Rick, what you got to talk about this week?
2: So today I want to talk about specialization and specialties within philosophy, within I think the humanities in general. I'm not sure how well this extends to natural sciences or social sciences. But I'll tell a story to try to get at what my concern is. And this is another one of those topics that I don't have an answer to. And I'm really excited to talk with you both about it. So my first teaching job was at a fairly well-known, let's say, art school. If you've seen, uh, oh, what's the name of the show? Tim Project Runway. If you've seen Project Runway, then you know the school I'm talking about. And the Liberal Studies Department, we got a huge grant to expand our curriculum to include voices we weren't necessarily including. So the administration told each of us that we need to include excluded voices and diversify each of our syllabi, which, by the way, in general, I think is a great idea and everyone should do it. But the faculty thought, well, we got like $750,000 or something. Why don't we hire an expert in race theory or Asian philosophies or feminist theory or something like that? And they're like, no, 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 you'll all just diversify your curricula. And I'm like, and that costs (laughs) $750,000? And on the other hand... I thought, okay, I'm happy to teach the Zhuangzi in in my class. I don't know the first thing about this text. And so is it appropriate to have me, who's not an expert, teaching texts like this? And so I wanted to talk about this kind of I don't want to call it attention because I don't think it is, but like, what's the right balance between acknowledging that our colleagues have specializations and these require skills, languages, they've developed unique methods and so on. The balance between that and the need we have, particularly within the humanities, to open up our syllabi and open up our disciplines to voices that have been excluded.
0: I wanted to ask you both Are you familiar with this great books model? It sometimes gets called the St. John's model. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that you run every class like a seminar. These seminars are structured in such a way that they're like cooperative learning so that the instructor is not taking on the traditional professorial role. But we're all investigating these texts or these ideas or these subjects together. I taught in a program like that when I was at Rhodes for a couple of years. We had basically a four-semester sequence that, unfortunately was called the search for values in Western history, philosophy, and religion or
1: something like that. That's wide open and inclusive.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, they, <laughs> hilariously, not too many years before I started teaching there, it used to be called the search for man. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So, like, or man, no man's search for values or something like that. Oh, but at any rate, this was the idea. Like we taught across many disciplines and, so, I should say, what I do think is good about these programs is that it provides first and second year students a kind of shared vocabulary, a shared body of resources. And so, you know, if you're teaching juniors and seniors, you know they've all read Newton, they've all read right. Plato, right. they all know certain things. And I think that there is something very valuable to that. However, when I taught, for example, in the first semester of this course, I'm teaching the Hebrew Bible, which I, you know, other than being a preacher's kid, I have, you know, it's not my area of expertise. Actually, it probably is my area. of expertise. Yeah, I was going to say,
1: as a PK, that's that probably occupied a huge part of your upbringing. Yeah, but,
0: but I'm teaching Gilgamesh, right? I'm teaching the Iliad, and also I'm teaching the Greek and Roman philosophers. Now, Greek and Roman philosophy is not my area of specialization, even in philosophy. However, I was trained in a history of philosophy program, so it's something that I know pretty well. But what I noticed was when students in my other classes who had other professors other than me for the first semester of search would talk about Plato, would talk about Aristotle. I'm like, no, that's like, right. <laughs> where did you hear that? You know, And so, you know, you don't want to be super territorial about your own discipline and say, well, you learned that from an art historian or you learn that from a history professor or a poli sci professor or whatever. But the fact is, is that as exactly as Rick is saying, certain skills and bodies of knowledge and references and expertise that people have who work in those areas. So I am torn about this because I do feel like, look, we should all, as a model, show our students that we are experts in the sense that we can engage texts and figures and traditions and thinkers, even if they're not in our area of specialization. But that is not to say that it is not important to have specialists employed at the universities so students can see, well, this is what an expert says about it.
1: You know, returning to Rick's original example, I think it's problematic when administrators use that argument in order not to hire more than likely oh, 100%, right, yeah. someone who's from an underrepresented field or an yeah. underrepresented group. So I think, yeah, spend the 750 grand and actually diversify your curriculum and diversify your campus community. But having said that, I think there's also something to say about people bumping up against the unknown and having to navigate and figure it out. And I don't, this is my example. I remember being in grad school and one of my mentors, one of my chairs actually accused me of being a dilettante or saying, don't be a dilettante. Because mm-hmm. that's the way I realize my mind kind of works. You know, I'm interested in all these various things, so I'll sort of take a piece here and take a piece there and I'll create a pastiche of a project. I call it interdisciplinarity. And I took that to heart because, as we know, your committee members in grad school, they actually have a piece of your soul in their pocket, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the most tender part of your soul. So for two or three years that you're dealing with them, they can really affect your emotions. But then later on, I came across a writing by the Afrofuturist writer Octavia Butler. And she celebrated being a dilettante. She celebrated this person who has bits and pieces of knowledge and has the ability to bring them together or to use them for key insights at certain moments and that sort of thing so yeah I respect specialists I mean I love Gerald Horn. The historian, I mean, you're not going to get really anybody doing better work on colonial era up through early 19th century African American history than Gerald Horne. He's amazing. But at the same time, I like people who are even dipping a toe into an area of knowledge can, with their very foreign or alien or different perspective and methodological approach, bring something new out of it. I think that creates such possibilities because specialists, as we know, can get really ground down and be very deep, but sometimes very narrow.
2: Yeah, I think that's really important. And so I have an example that I, I happen to like very much Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk. I think it's a, a remarkable text, and I teach sections of it from time to time. I read it a lot. I think both in relation to the question of race, but also in relation to philosophical concepts and ways of analysis. There are insights there that I borrow and use and so on. And yet then I'm at, let's say, a panel or where there's a discussion of this text. And suddenly the discussion, and this is an example I've experienced where, and I don't remember the specifics, but we're talking about one essay of that text. And the question was, is the placement of the next essay crucial to understanding the essay that we were talking about? And I thought, holy crap, like these questions never occurred to me. And am I missing something important? And consequently, am I doing an injustice to my students and to the text? So, I mean, there's a moment where I think I see the dilettantism, and I also see the downside in a certain way. But on the other hand, I was hired to teach medieval philosophy, well, also then critical theory, how those two go together, that's a matter for another day. But um, (laughs) so I have to keep up with my own specialty. So at a certain point, I, I have to be a dilettante. Otherwise, all I'm reading is just medieval philosophy and the scholarship on medieval philosophy. And then I think I would kill
1: myself. (laughs) Or at least go and lock yourself in a monastery with a hair shirt. (laughs) I have a question for both of you.
0: I wonder if interdisciplinarity is itself a kind of specialty. So anyone who holds a PhD has a certain kind of specialty in learning being able to read text, to understand thinkers, to understand traditions, and to seek out sources to fill in the gaps that they don't already know. But I do think that as we've seen interdisciplinarity grow as an emphasis in higher education over the last 10, 20 years, that there is a whole different kind of specialized skill set to working interdisciplinarily. Wait, you—you <laughs> you had it. Talk about, talk about
1: slurring. I was almost there. You were riding. You were riding <laughs> that bull. The bell's about to ring. You were at twenty-seven seconds, <laughs> and then it bucked you. Working, <laughs> I'm gonna try it again. Working <laughs> interdisciplinarily.
0: Whoa! <But laughs> all right. Well done. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I think that there are specializations. Within fields that require a kind of training in reading across fields, and that that becomes its own kind of specialization. And I think that one of the things that I worry about with myself and with my colleagues is that we conflate those two things the kind of interdisciplinary skills that we have just by having an advanced education, and interdisciplinarity as a specialization in itself.
2: Another strange example for me is, in this first-year class I teach, which focuses primarily on the infrastructure of Chicago, but also then the, the social, economic, racial aspects of something like infrastructure. Last year, for the first time, I taught this essay by a social scientist, and her main point of the essay was that minorities, and she was looking primarily at Latin American families around New York, they travel much longer to work than white workers do. And in order for her to then show this, she did this statistical analysis. I don't remember what it's called. Let's call it like an R recursion or, you know, something like that. And, you know, she... (laughs) She, she goes through it. Let's call it a pie graph. <laughs> Only would that there was a single graph in the whole thing. I would have been like, okay. I, I guess. He's
0: like, I know pies.
2: <laughs> oh, and I like pie. Um, No. So I I did some research on this. And my takeaway was that this method of analysis is a way of isolating all other variables so that you could begin to see whether your variable is actually meaningful or not. Right. Right, So how does she know that it's not income or that it's not gender or it's not any number of other factors. And so there's a statistical field developed just for this problem, and she uses it, and she demonstrates, lo and behold, that this community she was looking at, and she found particularly Latin American women in the New York metropolitan area, are traveling longer hours to work than not only their white counterparts, but almost all other workers in general. And so I'm teaching this essay, and at one point the student asks a question, and I said, well, what I just told you is pretty much what i want to take everything away. i know <laughs> i want yeah. to take away from this essay and i think it's pretty cool but the reason why i taught it was because i'm not teaching just philosophy students and we all teach students who aren't just in the disciplines we're teaching in yeah, and, of course. and i wanted other students to see that there's another approach you could take other than my main attitude toward the world is theoretical. And I tend to think that I could solve all problems, even problems of fact, in an a priori fashion. And I, 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 wanted, I wanted to try to show that... How's that working out for you? Well, let's see. Good times.
1: Good times.
0: I've got a pie chart of how many of those you've been able to work
1: out. Holy shit. And it's a, it's a whole undivided pie. It's, almost, it's completely homogeneous. It's right. all one color... It's an absolute, and it's perfection.
2: You know, right now it's drizzling, and it can't be drizzling. A priori, it just can't be drizzling. (laughs) Um, And I can demonstrate that. Um, No, so, I mean, that's one of the, I think, positive things, Charles, you were talking about in this dilettantism, is that I come to learn, wait a second. These kind of empirical approaches, and and that I don't mean in a philosophical sense, but in the social scientific sense, these empirical approaches have something to contribute, and I need to take them seriously. But holy cow, I don't have the skills to do this.
1: No, I mean, I think that's a great point. And this may be completely self-justifying, but I certainly celebrate what what we're calling interdisciplinarity. But at the same time, I understand the limits of it. I understand that if you threw tables and tables of quantitative data at me, I'm going to be lost. If you begin to really interrogate me about the methodological reasonings behind this study or that study, I'm going to be lost. So it is cherry picking in a certain way. Now the question is, and I think it's a question people who work like I do always get challenged on, is Well, how legitimate and how credible is your research or your insights if to some degree you are just selectively culling from certain fields of knowledge?
0: Hey listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter, at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at C.F. Peterson. That's at C underscore F. Peterson, and Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's, and filos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated Dr. and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. <laughs>
1: So the question I have about what we're calling specialization and what we're calling interdisciplinarity is really based upon the models that I had for writing. So W.E.B. Du Bois is one of those writers, and as you so wonderfully said, Rick, Souls of Black Folk is an amazingly progressive and paradigmatic work, certainly in the field of African-American or Africana studies. And there are other scholars in the field who work in very similar ways. If you look at what France Fanon is doing in Black Skin, White Mask, he's pulling from phenomenology, he's pulling from existential philosophy, he's pulling from Freudian psychology, he's pulling from literature. It's this amazing, insightful, powerful polyglot. So having said that, I wonder to what degree can we think about historicizing this thing called specialization and really sort of understanding that the way of functioning that we're calling dilettantism or that we're calling interdisciplinary, or maybe we can even call humanistic scholarship. Is that the older tradition and then specialization comes in later and wedges itself into the ways in which people produce knowledge?
2: I feel much more at home. I wonder how each of you feel. I feel much more at home being a dilettante in other fields in the humanities. Once I get into the social sciences, well, as long as I stick with theory, right, so I could do with psychoanalytic theory or other psychological theories or sociological theory and so on. But once I get into empirical research and then natural sciences, then I feel like holy crap, I think some of this is really important, but I think I'm a dilettante. I I mean, in a negative sense now, I'm really being a dilettante. You know, the Du Bois, the reconstruction text is also quasi-empirical social science, or at least he's relying on some empirical social science. And I'm like, my God, that's beyond me. That's just beyond my skill set
1: you know, just a quick note about that. We have to be reminded too, that Du Bois is educated, matriculates at a moment. So he's working with members of the American pragmatic tradition, but he's also working with the early school of of sociology and his earliest works were sociological works where he's really relying upon quantitative data to support his theoretical and conceptual reflection. So I want to say that, yes, it's how his mind worked, but I think also it's the way he's trained, Mm. right? In order to begin to fuse and bring these things together. And certainly the of his own genius is there. But I think, you know, if you're sitting with Bushnell and you're sitting with Santayana and you're sitting with William James, all these things are going to merge together and you're going to begin to carve a much more complex vision or methodological approach to certain issues and problems.
2: Sort of like Lee's earlier point about interdisciplinarity is itself a specialty.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think my
0: experience might slightly differ from Rick's in this way, which is that only in the last 10 or 15 years, when I've really focused on philosophy of technology, I do feel like my interdisciplinarity has gone beyond just other theoretical works. You know, I've had to learn a lot of technical things. But I want to get back just really quickly to Charles's question, which is, is this the new model of education, whereas the old model of education was specialization? Because I actually think that the oldest model of education was for everyone to be interdisciplinary, right. right? That was the medieval model of education. And then it was really only in the 19th and 20th century that specializations emerged and expertise in the way that we now think about expertise emerges. And it's only been really in the last 20, 25 years that there's been a push back towards broad intellectual engagement or interdisciplinarity, but for entirely different reasons than the old model of interdisciplinarity. So it's not that we want sort of broadly educated educators – So I think in the last 20 years, we have this new push towards interdisciplinarity, which is driven entirely by social justice motivations. So the diversification of higher education faculty, the diversification of higher education fields, and the push towards familiarity within fields with other fields. So I think there's good reason to celebrate this new push to interdisciplinarity. But because it's not on the old model where the old model was, we really want you to be experts in everything. So my training is obviously in the history of philosophy, but the people I was reading were all exactly as Charles said, they're also reading sociologists, psychologists, scientists, et cetera. And they're actually gaining this expertise in all of these other areas. Whereas now it it doesn't seem like that's really the model that we're pushing. We're just pushing for a kind of nodding familiarity with what other people are doing.
2: So Lee, I, I think I agree with you that there is a recent and I would say even laudable push toward both interdisciplinarity as well as making disciplines internally inclusive both of voices that haven't been included before and then inclusive of other voices. And I think to go back to Charles' point, and I think, Lee, you were making this point as well, you know, Leibniz contributed serious things to mathematics and Kant was reading... Yeah, calculus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that a little thing called the calculus. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Hobbes was taken seriously as a mathematician. I mean, he had a whack project to show that... Algebra made no sense and mathematics is just geometry, but okay. There. But he was taken seriously as a mathematician, was reading natural scientists and contributing to their discussions.
0: And Fanon had actual psychological patients. Yeah, he's yeah, like a
2: psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I feel like now, well, with the exception of maybe having psychological patients, I, I feel like those fields... That philosophers used to at least read and frequently contribute to have themselves become so complex that like you get beyond algebra and and my math is done. Like that, that, <laughs> that, that's it. And I'm not even making serious contributions to algebra. So I, I feel like those fields themselves have become more complex. And I do think that somewhat to our detriment, particularly in philosophy, that we're no longer in conversation with natural science, that we're no longer in conversation with mathematics, I think it gives us an impoverished view of the world to a certain extent. But then, and maybe this will push the conversation a little bit in the wrong direction, but we all, I think, suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome, and I'm afraid constantly of being caught out. And so, like, if I take up some sociological theory or something into my work, I'm always worried that someone's going to say, but Rick... That's not exactly how that theory goes, or...
0: Yeah, in the 1977 lectures of that. (laughs)
1: Right, (laughs) exactly, exactly. I think you're right. There's something certainly destabilizing for a PhD ego, which is always about establishing its mastery over whatever it is we're talking about and having that mastery being unchallenged. I mean, and you're right. Imposter syndrome is a huge part of that. And the fear that someone's going to say, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. But at the same time, and maybe this is just being idealistic on my part, and once again, maybe it's just a self-justification, it seems to me that hitting the limits of knowledge is where you begin to learn. Mm. So actually, Mm. someone saying, I see how you apply this particular sociological theory in your work. Well, this is not the way it's commonly read within sociological texts. So on another pass, maybe you can incorporate these other insights.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think the other side of that, too, is the kind of fresh eyes phenomenon, which is that when you come to look at something from outside of the conventional understanding of that topic, there's often a lot that you can offer without being an expert. So I think a really good example of this is the whole field of AI ethics. You know, I can do the research and I can come to look at a certain... Technology like facial recognition technology, which I can understand. Now, I myself could not build the neural network AI that would be required to execute facial recognition. However, I can understand how it works and I can understand what the effects of it are, but as an ethicist, just like sociologists, historians, race theorists can come and look at this technology and say to an engineer, this technology looks really good. It looks amazing, but you're not considering all of these other problems. Here's some fresh eyes. Here's some ways that we need to start talking to one another. That to me is interdisciplinarity as a skill, knowing how to find in a field other than yours what you may be able to contribute to the questions or the scholarship.
2: I think part of my training is what holds me back because like Lee, I was trained in a department that was devoted to the history of philosophy and and then contemporary European philosophy. Everyone, all the faculty in that department, they knew every language, seemingly, and there was a huge emphasis on knowing the language. No one ever really said, like, you can't understand Kant unless you read him in German, but there was that flavor in the air. And so there's a part of me that, coming out of that training, I get a little nervous when I'm out of my depth. But, Charles, I I like what you're saying that, in a sense, that's the moment in which, for one personally, knowledge can happen. And then Lee's fresh eyes theory is, and maybe because it's happened for you personally, you're actually making an advance in the discipline or in the field.
0: Once every episode, as a public service to Hotel Bar Sessions regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick-fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations.
1: Today's random fact is, the man who designed the Pringles can, Fred Bauer, is buried in one, or at least some of his ashes are.
2: Here's a random fact. Jeff Bezos' net worth is $209.2 billion with a B, US dollars. If he were a country, he would rank 56th in terms of gross domestic product.
0: Here's a random fact the Pope can't be an organ donor. Pope Benedict XVI was issued an organ donor card in 1970, but once he ascended to the papacy in 2005, the card was invalid. Because according to the Vatican, the Pope's entire body must be buried intact because his body belongs to the universal Catholic Church.
1: I came out of a program where there are really no requirements in terms of courses. Of course, you still have to take your master's exam, and certain courses were advised to prepare you for a quasi-standard history of philosophy master's exam, but it was wide open. And I was someone who came up on this thing called African philosophy that I was kind of doing, but because I wasn't connected to people who were in the quote-unquote mainstream of African philosophy, I kind of had to stitch it together on my own, but I was able to stitch it together because I was taking history courses. I was taking sociology courses. I was taking comparative literature courses. I was taking art history courses on top of the occasional course that I would take in philosophy. So I guess in a sense, my comfort with, being not completely in an element, because I don't even know what my element is. So I have a certain comfort with being able to say, oh, I'm going to learn something, or I anticipate that I'm going to hit a wall when I write this piece. And if someone pushes back, then I could gain something further. We're supposed to be these these masters of a particular body of knowledge, and then to be out of that body of knowledge, and you've lost some of your intellectual authority, or so we think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you came out of such a great program which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore the SUNY Binghamton Pick program philosophy interpretation and culture. Do you know how it's many amazing
1: programs? Do you know how many things in my life don't exist anymore that I was a <laughs> part of my high school, my junior high school, my dignity. My dignity. <laughs> my sense of peace and meaning gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but seriously, it, it is such an important training exercise to be in a program like that. I was really lucky when I did my PhD at Penn State. Since I was writing my dissertation on truth commissions, I was able to get a PhD minor. I don't even know if they have this anymore, but I got a PhD minor in African and African American studies, which also meant that in order to get that minor, I took a lot of sociology courses and history courses and courses outside of philosophy. I think I'm write about this, but I'm pretty sure that Texas A&M, their PhD philosophy program requires every PhD candidate to have a minor in a field outside of philosophy. A- actually, oh, wow. they require is, a
2: master's in a field outside of philosophy.
0: That is brilliant. brilliant. And that yeah. is great. And I think that that is good for our discipline. I wish there was more of it.
2: Yeah. Well, since we're all plugging schools, I went to the new school for social research and we all had to do uh, a minor And mine was in sociology. So since Lee mentioned that she got this minor in African and African-American studies, and Charles, you're now chair of a similar program. I mean, that's a field that from the ground up was built in an interdisciplinary fashion. And that is really so interesting to me. I mean, philosophy sort of experienced the opposite, that everything was philosophy at one point, and then all the disciplines just started getting shed off of it. Your own experience of having to discover for yourself what this field was, I I think it brings you more courage than I actually have.
1: I think that there is something to be said about the ways in which broadly what we can call area or ethnic studies programs and departments generate and demand that sort of work and that sort of vision, whether it be in terms of the work of an individual scholar or just being in that space where you have to have conversations within your department with someone who's doing sociology or someone who's doing history or someone who's doing political science, so forth and so on. But I think it's interesting that you are right, that philosophies claim to the foundation of of Western knowledge is that all of the disciplines were contained within philosophy and then sort of branched out. And the reason why I became a philosophy major, as opposed to a history major or an English major, which were my interests, was because I felt like I could do historical type of things or I could do literary type of things with the philosophical foundation.
0: Yeah, it's our sandbox. Everybody else is just playing in it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Charles, I think it's also interesting to think about why did... I choose philosophy, for example, I was interested in linguistics, I had all these interests. And I think for me, in the end, the way of asking questions, I thought,
1: okay, this is how I ask questions,
2: as if they could all be solved out-priority. Oh
1: my God, I swear to God, that's the exact same approach. Right. I'm always asking questions, and if this field is about asking questions, then sign me up.
2: Right. (laughs)
1: Same. Yeah, just sign me up.
2: Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact, all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes, please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink
0: okay so i'd like to circle back to the topic of this episode which is specializations and in particular i want to talk about the relationship between choosing a specialization and getting a job because i think that this is a It's like a major life moment in higher education when you're studying in your PhD program and you have to think about not only what you want to do, what you're interested in, what you're good at, but also what's going to get you hired. And I want to say that I do worry sometimes that that push towards specializations is not good for the institution as a whole, for academia as a whole. So I want you to answer whether or not you think that's good or bad for higher education as a whole. But secondly, and I'm going to preface this with an anecdotal story, but secondly, back to Rick's original point, which is that one of the benefits of hiring specialists is that we could possibly diversify departments, both in terms of topics and in terms of faculty members. So here's my anecdote. When I was a PhD student in the early 2000s, it was assumed that if you were a woman in philosophy, that one of your AOSs is feminism. And it was assumed that because that's how you were going to get a job. Whatever else you did, you also have to do feminism. So for the record, I do do, I do do, I do do feminism.
1: It is feminism that I do.
0: (laughs) Feminism is done by. I I do work on gender and sexuality studies and feminist theory. But when I was a graduate student, I was so resistant to making that my specialization Because it's not my primary area, and I worried about getting hired as a feminist in a department that just wanted a woman, and then all I could ever teach was feminism and gender and sexuality studies. And so I do worry a little bit about this conflation of... We need to hire new specializations, like we need to hire someone in race theory, we need to hire someone in feminist theory, we need to hire someone in Asian philosophy or queer theory, when what people really mean is we need to hire a black, a woman, a queer or an Asian person. Those should be separate projects. If you need to diversify the demographics in your department, that should be a separate project. I mean, sometimes they overlap, but I I worry about conflating those things because it really boxes in people from traditionally underrepresented communities into working only in those particular specializations.
2: I, I think both of those sides are really important. You know, and from the time I've been on a faculty and we've wanted to hire, for example, a person of color, we've always just put an ad for race theory. As if someone who is not a person of color can't work on race theory, and by the way, should. But, you know, there are lots of other ways to go about diversifying your faculty. The other side of that, though, Lee, is that I think one of the reasons why, for example, departments hire specialists is because we decide that it is important for our students to know this. And because it's important for our students to know this, we think it's important that they're trained by someone who, for lack of a better word, is an expert in this, right?
0: I get the motivation, but here's the problem, is that there's two problems. One is that, what I said earlier, it has a tendency to box PhD students into their identity in terms of specialization. But then there's the problem that you just mentioned, which is that if you're a white student, why would you specialize in race theory? Surely your advisor is telling you, you are going to be last on the list of any short list in race theory if you're white, or you're going to be last on the list of any short list in feminist theory if you're a man. You know what I'm saying? Like so, At least
2: if- after the interview.
0: Right. Well, yeah, if you make it in the chart list, you're going to get the job. But you know what I'm saying, that it has these really deleterious effects. I mean, I don't know that I have a solution to this problem. I think this is a unfortunate byproduct of the way that our discipline and really the humanities in general have developed.
1: But it really worries me. No, and as someone who is the other side of that, which is that my degree is in philosophy, interpretation and culture, I consciously decided to work in this thing that we now call Africana philosophy and have always taught in Africana studies departments. I've never taught, I've never been a vested line in a philosophy department. I don't mind that at all. And that's for a host of reasons that we can just spend a whole another episode talking about. Woof! <laughs> but at the same time, that it, this becomes a really quick and dirty shorthand by which to sort of scratch off two boxes at one time. We diversify the faculty, and also we get someone that does this work. When there are people, and I've seen this, I've known scholars of color, I've known African descended scholars who were, were not interested in doing the racial or the cultural tradition of their experience, and were much more interested in doing some type of European high theory. But that was the only way they can get a job, because no one would take them seriously if they wanted to study Derrida, or study other post-structuralist readings of certain types of texts. So there is that and I also have white students who become Africana studies majors, and oftentimes they will ask me, what is it for me to be in this field? What would it look like for me going forward? And ultimately, I have to say to them, yeah, there's going to be resistance, there's going to be tension. You are going to have voices that feel that having an African-descended person who's doing Africana studies you know, can present much more, and this is a deeply problematic way of thinking about it, but, but not lacking credibility. There's an experiential sort of insight to this that add to the instruction the, the pedagogy and the research. But at the same time, I've said to students, at the end of the day, if you do the work, but you are very self-aware of what your racial position is in relationship to the work and the history and the experience, and you're honest about that, then you're going to have more credibility with those who may want to hire you who are doing it in a sincere fashion. There is a broad history of white scholars who have been engaged in Africana studies. Some of them are, are extremely horrific and terrible and damaging to the field and to people in the field. And others have been amazingly beneficial. If Marcus Redeker, one of my favorite historians, came in and said, hey Charles, I'm going to go ahead and conduct this lecture on the Atlantic slave trade that you're about to do, I'm going to say, thank you Dr. Redeker. I'm looking forward to learning from you because he knows his shit, he does the work, but he's very, very clear about his social, ethnic, racial relationship and positioning to all of the things that he's teaching and researching and the people that are affected by that. So it's a very complex and a very nuanced way of approaching it. The questions have to be asked, but I think there are earnest and legitimate answers that can be given to those questions.
2: I also think, as both of you were talking, it it dawned on me that a lot of this drive towards specialization is coming from a kind of filtering down from graduate education to undergraduate education, because I, I think there's no reason for an undergraduate major in anything to be a specialist, I mean, now everyone's saying totally everyone's saying that 80 percent of students or whatever it is are not going to be working in a profession associated with their major. And, you know, we have empirical research to show that probably being to use Charles word again in a positive way, being a dilettante is probably the best life strategy. It's the best economic strategy. It's the best mm-hmm. strategy yeah. overall.
0: I don't think that undergraduates should be allowed to declare a major until their fifth semester. Yes. Yeah. Our undergraduates come in in their first semester having already declared a major. And that to me is insanity.
2: Right. That makes no sense. And I that. think the humanities always loses in that.
1: Always, yeah. Yeah. I think we're the last, or maybe, you know, my dad's 91, my mom's 80, so I think my dad's generation was the last generation that could settle in and say, hey, I've got this job for 30, 40 years, Mm. I've got a pension, it's as regular as rain in the spring and sun in the summer, right? This generation, and our generation as well, we all know friends of our age group that have had two or three careers, Right. I mean, that's the norm. Yeah. I
0: mean, parents come in now in orientation and say, what can my kid do with a philosophy major? And I say, and I, th- I don't have hard numbers, but it, like spitballing, I would say that a good 20 to 30% of students that I've taught are working in jobs that did not exist when I taught yeah, them. Right. And that probably 80% of them are working in jobs that are not in their
1: major. Yeah. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's important to say to parents and to students sometimes who are uncertain, it's not a question of what this field would do for you as a job. The question is, what skills will this field teach me that will allow for yeah. me to be eligible for jobs or competitive for jobs when I get out of college? And the widest possible spectrum of jobs. Yeah. Right.
0: Including jobs that don't exist yet. Yeah. And and also,
1: Charles, (laughs)
2: just as that generation was the last to have a job for 30 years and a regular pension, that was also the last generation for which it was regular that it rained in spring and the sunshine came in summer. Right. Right.
0: I mean, I really do think that we should replace specializations with skill sets now at the undergraduate level. The graduate level is a whole different uh, ballgame. But at the undergraduate level, I feel like students should basically get a series of certificates in skill sets, capacities that they have taken enough courses to demonstrate that they have Because that's really what employers are looking for now. Right, right. It's not did you major in X. Also,
2: I mean, unless you go into the military or the clergy, everyone's in business, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. What I'm saying is, is that really what employers are looking for now? Most employers is someone who can learn quickly who can work in a group who can understand instructions probably who can read and write well who has some basic computational capacity and who can meet deadlines finish projects on time etc yeah critically
1: engage attack ask important questions sort of group organization i mean and also like take
2: uh, what i've learned over here in this problem and realize that what seems like a completely different problem yeah. is actually, yeah. I can abstract from that and plop it down over here, sure. and I can do that on my own without being trained.
0: Yeah, so my grandfather used to say, they can big picture it.
1: Yeah. No, yeah. that's it. That's a perfect way to put it. <laughs>
0: So this will come as a surprise to all of you regular listeners of Hotel Bar Sessions, but sometimes the HBS hosts don't actually say everything they meant to say during our episodes. Or, as happens more often, they realize after the episode is recorded that there's something they should have said that they didn't. For that reason, we have a whole section on our YouTube channel and our website dedicated to a video series we call Afterthoughts. Once every three episodes, Charles, Rick, and I record a video so yes, you can see our actual faces in which we more or less try to reviewer number two ourselves. You can check the Hotel Bar Sessions Afterthoughts on our YouTube channel. Just search for Hotel Bar Sessions on YouTube to find it and be sure to subscribe when you do or you can also find a feed to our afterthoughts under the Listen tab on our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com. Now, back to the conversation.
2: I, I don't want to leave without saying that We all are professors and we do have specializations and there's good reason to have specializations. We have skills that we've developed in order to have these specializations. So I just wanted to say, at least I am not in favor of no longer having experts. So I didn't want to leave without saying that.
1: A world without experts. We thank you for your expert opinion. On the, the lack of expertise. Well, we've seen what it looks like in government. So, <laughs> but oh, I, I think Frangelica's given us the eye, and it's not the eye you Framing. want. Yeah, it's it's last call, everybody. Come on. And, let's, and what let's... if she weren't an expert? What if she were not an expert? Well, we'd be in bad shape, which are fancy drinks. <laughs> Bartending
0: is a specialization that Rick definitely needs. With his fancy, <laughs>
1: exactly. The guy that's serving you a cold style may not be serving you his <laughs> drinks. But she's given us the eye. It's last call, everybody. So, Lee, what are we talking about next time?
0: So, you guys, next time we are going to be talking about guns.
1: Nah, nah, nah.
0: <laughs> when we were sharing ideas about topics that we wanted to cover before the season started, you know, I put guns on my list and my explanation under there was just like, what the hell, why so many? Can we just not? <laughs> and right. that is really In general, the whole of my position on guns. But it is a more complicated conversation than that, and we need to have it. Among other things, we're going to be talking about the second, this new book by Emory Professor Carol Anderson, where she talks about the long anti-Black history of gun laws in the United States and how— race defines gun rights today, but also I think that maybe Charles is going to tell us a little bit about why my position
1: might be a little narrow on guns. Hey, (laughs) hey, I'm not in the hot seat. You're in the hot seat next time.
0: Yeah, well, it's going to be the hot seat because I understand that you're packing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. And on that note, um, (laughs) I think we're getting pushed out the bar. You know what? (laughs) Say good rick (laughs) good night rick night rick (laughs) (laughs) lee have a good one (laughs) bye everybody